conflict creates confusion. If you've ever been in the midst of conflict, you know how that can create doubt in your mind. You can have doubt about what you believe and and how you live your life and what you think. And especially if there's conflict in the midst of community, so whether that be in a nation or a particular state or in a family or maybe perhaps in the, the place that you work, whenever conflict hits a community that believed that it shared values and beliefs and a mission, people start to question, hey, what do I really believe? What, what, what do I really think? What, what is the purpose? What is going on? Conflict can create confusion. In the first century, the Apostle John wrote a letter to a church that was in the midst of conflict. You see, there were a number of false teachers that had entered into this church and had created enough of a following that there was a church split. And so there was conflict in the midst of this church that was creating confusion. Now imagine, let's say Pastor Paul decides one day he no longer believes that Jesus came in the flesh, or that he no longer believes that Jesus had to die to save us, or that you do not need to repent of your sins. Look, I'm not concerned about Pastor Paul. It's just an illustration. He can make me the hypothetical heretic in his sermon. But, but imagine he starts teaching these things and 30, 40, 50 of you decide, I'm with Paul, and you all leave and go down the street and start Second City Church. <laughs> Would that not create some pain? Would that not create some confusion? What, what, have I been reading the Bible wrong? Is, is Paul right? Do, do I really understand who Jesus is? I, I kind of like Paul more than I like Pastor Chris, so should I go with him? And even those of you that would say, well, I don't agree with what Paul is teaching, you're still going to start to question, hey, is the strength of this church really as strong as I thought it was? Are, are, are we, were we as healthy as I thought we were? And so confusion begins to set in. John was writing to a church that was having an identity crisis, As confusion set in, as conflict and pain was taking over, they began to ask, do I really believe correctly? Do I really know the true Christ? Am I following the true gospel? Who am I? Who are we? And so John is writing, one, to heal some of that pain, to heal some of those divisions, and also to try to reestablish a sense of confidence in the church that says, hey, you believe the right thing. Stay with the true Christ. Stay with the true gospel. And so John is writing in the midst of pain and confusion in order to bring comfort and confidence. See, good chunks of the New Testament are written to confront false teaching. But not all of the writers do it the same way. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, in books like Galatians and Romans, and somewhat, as we saw in 1 Timothy over the spring, when he confronts false teachers, this is usually what he does. He'll take the teaching, he'll sort of dissect it and unpack it, and kind of point by point show why it's wrong. That's one way to do it. That's not how John does it. John takes a little bit different approach. It's called epideictic rhetoric. So this is kind of like, if you're into, if you're like a rhetoric nerd or like ancient Greek nerd, some of you that go to like classical school, you probably know what that means. But this approach is less some sort of like linear sort of judicial unpacking, and it's more like rally the troops, pep rally kind of approach. So let me illustrate it this way. 
It's not a lawyer standing in front of the Supreme Court unpacking all the reasons segregation is against the law. It's Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It's not someone in Congress standing before that body arguing all the reasons why the nation should go to war. It's William Wallace standing in front of a group of men saying, hey, let's fight for our freedom. Strong, direct, vivid language that reminds people, hey, this is who we are, this is what we believe. And so John steps into that space with this letter and says, hey, church, this is what is true, this is what is not true. This is who you are, this is who you are not. This is what is the true gospel, the true Christ, and this is what is not the true gospel and the true Christ. This is what it means to follow Jesus, this is what it doesn't mean to follow Jesus. So he's writing to remind them, to encourage them, to say, hey, keep holding to the truth. Keep holding to Christ. Keep holding to the gospel. Keep following righteousness and love. He's reminding them who they are. He's clarifying their identity. He's trying to bring confidence in the midst of confusion. And look, for us, First City Church, Bellevue, Nebraska, I pray we never face a church split. I pray we never face what this church in the first century faced. However, Make no mistake, we will face conflict. We will face confusion. There are a lot of voices out there trying to tell us what is true, and at times that can be a little bit confusing. We get weak. In the midst of suffering and trial and pain and sin, we get weak. We have doubts. We have identity crisis. And so we need to be reminded, continually reminded of who God is, who Christ is, who we are in Christ. We need to be encouraged and exhorted. We need to be challenged. First John is a great book to dive into coming out of our gospel-centered series because in many ways it reinforces the things that we had talked about back in September. So I'm excited to jump into this book to, to sort of go deeper into some of these themes. Here, here's also why I want to go through the book of John. Because as a church, we need to learn what it looks like to engage people's doubts. And there's a difference between doubt and unbelief that we need to appreciate. See, doubt is one thing, unbelief is another. And we need to be aware of that oftentimes doubt comes because of pain and suffering. As a, as a good friend of mine who's also a pastor puts it, he said, doubt is a question. Unbelief is a conclusion. Doubt says, huh, let me consider that. Unbelief says, ha, I got you. Doubt is asking questions. Unbelief is demanding that you be proven wrong. And we need to appreciate the differences as we enter into people's struggles and so as we go through the book of 1 John, I, I want us to learn what it means to lovingly engage doubts, but also confidently confront unbelief and false teaching that wants to try to destroy Christian community. John gives us some good handholds for that. So with all of that as backdrop, let's turn our attention to 1 John 1, 1 through 4. As John opens his letter by pointing the church to Christ reminding the church that they belong to Jesus. They're Jesus' crew, his people, his entourage. 
saying that word, I, I think of Michael Scott in the office, entourage. <laughs> Some of you get that. <laughs> but John is reminding, hey, this is who you belong to. This is the community that you are. And so to unpack this passage, to, to remind us all of who we are in Christ, I want to look at three kind of categories. The who, the what, and the so what. The who, the what, and the so what. So first, the who. When you think about belonging to a group, when you think about belonging to a crew or an entourage, it is only as meaningful as the person who is at the center of that group. Or it's only as meaningful as sort of the cause that that group has given itself to. Like you can be a crew, you can be a community, but if the center of that is nothing special, then what difference does it make? So when I was in seventh grade, uh, so seventh grade for me, I, I started junior high, and in the junior high at South Sioux at the time, uh, the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade shared the same building. So if you were a seventh grader, you were on the bottom end of the totem pole. And, and so it was important for you to sort of attach to a group of friends so that, that you sort of had uh, a relationships that kind of could watch your back. And so I remember I was on the, the football team, seventh and eighth grade football team, and there was this eighth grader named Jack. And you did not mess with Jack. He was like that kind of kid out of, you know, the outsiders, that story, the outsiders, like the greasers, like the tough dudes. Like he was like that. And being on his football team, for some reason, he, he thought I was cool. He loved me. And so I was, I was sort of included with Jack. Now, I didn't really run with his crew, but I, I was sort of in. And, and that gave me some credibility. That was like, I have this tough dude who has my back. My seventh grade homeroom teacher, I can remember her talking to me saying like, hey, you should not hang out with him. You, you are a good kid. Stay away from him. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, he's like, he, he like helps me out. Why do, why do I want to run away from this kid? So Jack was someone you wanted to roll with if you wanted to be sort of protected in the, the ecosystem of junior high at South Sioux City. Who is it for you? Like, if you think about your life right now, who is the person, who is the group that you identify with that gives you a sense of identity, comfort, security, validation? Like, you feel safe, you feel protected, you feel like you have something of substance because you're a part of that person or that community. To make a point about being in a relationship with Christ, John is going to remind the church who Christ is. So in verses 1 and 2, we get this one long sentence where John weaves these two threads about Christ's identity together. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 and see how these, we, these threads are weaved together by John. Now I want you to pay attention to the underlying portions. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which was from the beginning, the word of life, the eternal life, which was with the Father, these phrases speak to the divinity of Christ. That which was from the beginning. You, you, those of you who are familiar with scripture, you might be sort of hearing John's gospel, where at the beginning of his gospel, he opens with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
In both of these instances, this phrase, from the beginning, is meant to echo Genesis 1.1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before there was life, before there was matter, before there was any speck of our universe, who was there? God, the uncreated one, the one who has always existed. And who was there from the beginning? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the uncreated one, God. And then John calls Jesus Christ the eternal life. Now look, John isn't stupid. He knows that human beings are born. He knows that they have a beginning point and they eventually die. To call someone eternal, the eternal life, means that you can't just be a human being. To be eternal life itself, you have to be eternal. And so John is calling Jesus the eternal one the one who has always existed and always will exist, the one who has life in himself and who has life in himself, who is eternal but God. So John is making some strong statements about who Jesus is. He was from the beginning. He has always been. He is eternal life. Jesus is not just another rabbi or another teacher or another wise man or another political leader. He is God himself. How does that compare with who you roll with? How does that compare with the person who is sort of the center of gravity for your identity? How does that compare with the person that you look to for hope and comfort and peace and security? See, there are a lot of leaders, there are a lot of people who offer promises of identity and promises of security and promises of comfort. Be in relationship with me, I'll give you the world. Be in relationship with me and your life will be better. It will be fulfilled. You will find joy. But all of those people fail. All of those people have a shelf life. All of those people are mere humans. They're limited. Guess what? Eventually their power and their life will end. Their promises will fail. What they can offer you is short-lived. And so if your hope is rooted there, you're missing something grander. You're missing something bigger. God himself offers himself to you. God himself says, find your identity, your hope in me. God himself, who is the source of all life and freedom and joy and redemption. God himself, who is eternal and depends on no one. God himself, who has life within himself. says, come to me. Find your identity in me. Find your comfort in me. Find your security in me. But it is not just that Jesus is God. Let's read these verses again. And again, pay attention to the underlying portions. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest, made manifest to us. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have touched with our hands. This Jesus who is God the Son became man, became fully human, became a real human being, real flesh, real veins, real skeletal structure, real nerve endings. He had eyeballs, eye color. He had a voice. He had hair color. He had a height and a weight. 
Jesus Christ put on flesh. He became human. And you can see John just stacking the sensory experience with Jesus. Well, we've heard him. We heard his voice. And yet you can hear someone saying, well, guess what? I can hear things that aren't necessarily there. Maybe I heard a voice in my head. He's like, okay, if that's not good enough, we've seen him. We witnessed it. We saw it all happen. Well, guess what? Sometimes I see things that aren't there. Or maybe it was in my mind's eye. Or maybe it was a vision. Maybe it wasn't actually tangible. John's like, okay, fine. We touched him. Like we grabbed a hold of him. We hugged him. He was physically there. Like the nails really went through his hands. It's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue with someone who has tangibly grabbed a hold of someone has been hugged by someone, has felt their breath in their face. Jesus was physically human. He was there. As we talked about last month, the gospel is historic. Like Jesus actually walked this earth. He walked the streets of Judea and Jerusalem. He slept in a bed. He ate food. He taught in a synagogue. All of this was real and true. John is reminding them that God, this eternal uncreated one became human and was made manifest. He was revealed. He came to us. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus becoming man means God isn't distant. It means God is not distant. God is not some abstract philosophical category. God is not distant and indifferent to our sin and our suffering. Jesus becoming a man means he stepped right into our mess right into our sin, right into our suffering. And he loved us. He, he sat with the sick and the diseased and the demon oppressed. He, he mourned with those who lost loved ones. He, he confronted corrupt leaders. But Jesus stepped into the midst of relational conflict and pain. And he loved us so much that he healed He healed the sick and the diseased. He set free those who were possessed by demons. He dismantled powerful, corrupt leaders and their their leadership structures. And moreover, he took our sin, he took our shame upon himself. He took the judgment that you and I deserved on his own physical, real body, and he suffered and died in our place. Jesus becoming a man means that God is near And God's love spared no expense to save you, to redeem you, to comfort you, to give you an identity. On Jesus becoming man is good news for us, church. How does that compare with the crew you roll with? How does that compare to the leader you follow and find your identity in? Because here's the the reality of most groups and most leaders. Like they accept you as long as you are for their agenda. As long as you validate what they want you to validate, as long as you give them an identity, as long as you make them look good, as long as you are on board with them and and sort of prop them up. And what's scary is we are so identity-starved and community-starved that we will be used by people. We will let them use us. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus The God-man, eternal God, didn't come to be served, but to serve. Don't miss this, that Jesus, for you to belong to Jesus, is not, hey, come and validate me. Hey, come be about my agenda. Hey, make me look good. It's, I'm going to serve you. 
Jesus laid down his life so that we could be in relationship with him. Now look, yes, we're his disciples. Yes, we're called to worship and follow him. But that happens because Jesus served you, because Jesus loves you, because he sacrificed for you. Our worship, our service, our love is because he's worthy and because he first loved us. You see, belonging to Jesus, you thrive. you're, You're built up. He gives you the life that is in him so that you may live. And so let's not miss that this whole thing, following Christ, is not so we can just sort of prop up some man, prop up some institution. It's about following a real God who stepped into history and loved and served us so that we can know life. That's what it means to belong to Jesus. That's what it means to to be part of his community. So Jesus is the who of our community. Jesus is the who that gives us an identity. Let's move to the what. Jesus is the who, what is the what? Well, as we see in verses one and two, John said he, and and really the, the plural pronouns here, are reference to the other apostles, other eyewitnesses, that he and the other apostles, other eyewitnesses testify and proclaim to Christ. So they testify. They say, hey, we saw all this. We heard Jesus. We saw Jesus. We are testifying as eyewitnesses saying that he really performed these miracles. He really died. He was really resurrected. They also proclaim, meaning they declare the message and meaning of Christ's coming. They declare that Christ came to be crucified so that we could be forgiven. And all of that testifying, all of that proclaiming is for a purpose. Look what verse 3 says. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Christ. So again, the us there is in reference to the apostles and the eyewitnesses. And, and John is saying, hey, we proclaim this message of Jesus so you would believe and you would be part of us. You would be part of the community of Christ. But John doesn't leave it there. He's not saying the best thing is that you are a part of us in this community, the church. The best thing is that this group, this community, is actually in relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And so the best part of this relationship is that there is fellowship with the Trinity, And John is also taking a shot at the false teachers here. He's saying, hey, you being in relationship with us because we're in relationship with God means relationship with us means relationship with God, not these false teachers. So the what here, this word that is repeated, is fellowship. Fellowship. Now, that word kind of sounds churchy, right? Like, Like some of you probably grew up in churches that had a fellowship hall. And what did you do in the fellowship hall? You hung out and you ate. Great. Come to the chili cook-off. We'll do some fellowship. But fellowship is a far deeper word. The, the, the word in the Greek, koinonia, has, has a much deeper meaning than just, hey, we hang out and spend time together. Fellowship is not just sort of some casual thing that we do. It is deep. It is vulnerable. It is intimate. It is stepping into sort of those close quarters with one another and sharing life in the deepest parts It's scary, it's risky, it's messy. But this fellowship that is pictured is also one of love, of sacrifice, of care, of concern, 
of, of, of encouragement, of, of discipling one another, and even challenging one another. And so there's this wonderful energy in life that takes place in the most intimate parts of our lives. That is fellowship. That is what we are called into with one another. This isn't casual. What we're doing here isn't just some casual social club. Like we are the people of God who've been brought together by Christ so that we can deeply love him and love each other and be on missions to glorify God and make disciples of Jesus. Like our bond has been purchased by the blood of Christ and it is strengthened through the trial of pain and suffering and sin as well as the encouragement and the teaching and the joy that we have with one another. It's no small thing that we're doing here, church. Fellowship is heavy business. It's hard work. It's serious work. But that's what Christ came for. That's why we believe. That's what, that's what happens when we are part of a community. But what makes this fellowship so powerful, what gives us hope, what gives us power, is that we are being brought into fellowship with the Trinity. I mean, how is that for your crew? Like, who, who do you want to run with? Like, let me ask the question, who, who is the person that if you think, man, I wish I could be in relationship with this person. I, I wish this person would give me validity and identity and comfort because if I was with this person, man, I would have made it. Whoever that may be, I promise you, pales in comparison to the almighty trinity. Pales in comparison in power and glory and love and grace and just fill in the blank to the Trinity. And yet that is who Christ brings us into fellowship with. In the Gospel of John, John writes about this and when he records Jesus' words. Here's just a couple of examples. John 14. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Like setting up shop in you setting up shop with you. That's intimate, that's close. And then John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples that they may all be one, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Look, the intimacy that Christ has with the Father, we're invited into that. If that seems just like, okay, okay, that's overstating things, take it up with Jesus. That the intimacy that the Father has with the Son, that would be the same thing that we have with the Father and the Son. This is what we're invited into, church. This is our community. See, the Trinity is not just some philosophical, abstract, theological question that confuses us with voodoo math. It speaks to a powerful reality, a relationship that has existed for eternity that you and I, through Jesus Christ, are invited into. It speaks to a life-giving, vital relationship that we find our identity in, we find our hope in, we find our comfort in, far surpassing any relationship or any crew that we could run with in this life. See, the Trinity is to remind us and to, to, to speak to just how deep the relationship goes, just how powerful the relationship is. I mean, have you ever had one of those those situations where you kind of look at a relationship and you just see so much love and so much joy and it just seems so healthy and you're like, man, I wish I could be a part of that. I wish I could be in that thing. That's what the Trinity, that's what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfect love, health, the, the relationship we all want to be a part of and we all long for. And through Jesus Christ, they say, come, 
Come be a part of this. Come be a part of this love. Come be a part of this life. Come be a part of this joy, this peace. Come let us renew you and heal you and restore you. Come experience the love we have for one another and that love that we have for you. That is what the Trinity does. That is what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit call us into. That's what John is reminding the church. He's trying to remind them who they are, give them confidence in, hey, this is the fellowship you're a part of. Stay with Christ because this is the relationship you are a part of. So the who is Christ, the what is fellowship, the so what. Because we can ask the question, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about having fellowship with the church, fellowship with God the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit, especially if you've been hurt by the church? Like, I know there are some people who are gun shy. Like, I understand that. And so you could be asking the question, what's the point? What's the purpose? Or maybe for those of you this morning that wouldn't profess faith in Christ, you're like, well, why should I risk for this? Why should I care about this? It's a good question. It's a really good question. Listen to what John tells the church in verse four. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy. You see, at the center of all this fellowship talk is joy. Like, like John is not some, you know, angry, crusty pastor who is trying to grab hold of power and keep people from, from running after other teachers. He's not jealous of these false teachers. He's not in competition with these false teachers because he's like, man, I'm losing my crew. I'm losing my community. See, when John writes this, he's an old man. He's an old man who's been through some things. And he's writing from a heart of love because he recognizes that at the, the midst of community is supposed to be joy. And with this conflict, with this split, joy has gone. Joy has been compromised. Joy has been challenged. And so he's writing to them to remind them who Christ is, to remind them who they are, so joy can be reestablished. Joy that the church is going to experience in community and then joy that John is going to feel as a pastor knowing that this church is back in community with one another, loving and serving and worshiping as they ought to. So John is after joy. John recognizes that joy is a powerful thing in community. Joy is powerful when we experience a community. So I um, came across this article recently. Uh, It's a few years old, but those of you that are NBA basketball fans, Golden State Warriors, right? I mean, they're the dynasty of the ages going on right now. It seems like they keep adding all-star after all-star after all-star. Well, back in the 2015-2016 season, they started off 15-0, and they were like breaking records for like the best start. And ESPN wrote an article that says, for the Golden State Warriors, joy is a weapon. You see, what people were noticing about the Golden State Warriors is they weren't just beating people, they were having fun doing it. Like they looked like a team that just liked each other and loved each other and having fun playing basketball. And so the article goes on to explain how joy was part of the culture of this team. There was a ton of encouragement for one another. And then there was this one part that talked about like Steph Curry, like the, the player on the team. He just won two MVPs. He was like the top player in the NBA. And he's on the bench watching the reserves playing. And when they do something good, he's like the biggest celebrator. Like he's going crazy celebrating for, the, for like the second string and third string guys. And it just spoke to the encouragement and the joy they had for one another. The way that they celebrated their team, celebrated being in relationship with one another. And that got them through the challenges of a basketball season. 
Joy is powerful. Joy can carry you in ways that other motivations can't. Joy is a powerful thing in the midst of sin and suffering and trial and pain. If we can find joy in a basketball team, that the mission is basketball, that's sort of centered around a game, how much more if that joy is rooted in Jesus Christ, if that joy is experienced in relationship with the Trinity. Joy is a powerful, powerful aspect of community. John knows the power of joy. John knows what joy can do for this community. John knows knows that if this community is lit on fire with joy in the Lord, that they are going to be unstoppable in their mission. They're going to love one another. They're going to be unified, and they're going to carry the gospel into the world. And so he is writing this letter. He is trying to remind them of who they are in Christ so that they might have joy. That's the so what. Joy. The so what is that we would have real joy. Joy with one another because we have joy in Christ. And again, you may be thinking, man, that sounds nice on paper, but I've lived through some things. I've been part of a church. I know that's not how it goes. Come on. We can talk about joy until we're blue in the face. But, but when we really get down to it, it's painful. And many of you have been in churches that lack joy, that, that it seemed very cold and detached. And, and I don't want to minimize that at all. Like, look, I, I carry the scars of being in churches like that. Like, I have been the guy who has been cynical about church. And look, there are some churches that are so unhealthy that, yes, you should leave. I don't say that lightly. But there is a real abuse that takes place in some churches. There is, these churches have lost the gospel. They've moved away from the things of Christ. They've lost their identity in Christ, and they've turned into places that are miserable. I'm not going to deny that. But, but here's the reality. No matter where you go, you're going to experience pain. No matter where you go, you're going to experience sin. No matter where you go, it is going to be messy. Like, I praise God that for the first almost three years of this church, we have been healthy. That is the grace of God. That is uh, walking in humility, walking in repentance, trying to really work hard to be healthy. But it's still messy here. Those of you that have been part of First City for like a week know it is still messy here. It is still hard here. There is not a single community you can be a part of that isn't messy because we're all sinners. We're all broken. You put two sinners in a room. No, you just put one sinner in a room. It's messy. And so the question is not if pain is going to happen, if suffering is going to happen, if trial and conflict are going to happen. The question is, what crew are you running with that gives you hope in the midst of that conflict and that pain and that mess? Do you you run with a crew that finds their identity in Jesus Christ who has come and loved us and died for us and offers salvation and repentance and forgiveness and healing and cleansing and transformation and restoration, who offers a hope of renewal when he comes back one day, whose kingdom is advancing to see justice and righteousness and peace flourish? Is that the crew you're running with that, that holds on to that hope? that is trying to walk in humility and repentance and experiencing renewal. Yeah, we don't do this perfectly. We, we, we are clumsy and we trip and we stumble and we hurt one another. But if our identity is in Christ, if, if his power is at work in our lives, if we are fellowshipping within the Trinity, then guess what? We have great hope. 
because the power of the gospel will transform us, even in the midst of that sin. In fact, God will use the sin. He will use the conflict. He will use the suffering to make us more like Jesus and to forge a bond that we have that's unbreakable. Is that the crew you're running with? Or is it a crew that just spends time pretending like everything's okay, performing for one another, trying to set up a kingdom that's going to pass away, retreating into tribal politics, What crew are you running with in the midst of the pain and the suffering, in the midst of the conflict? Our who is Christ. Our what is fellowship with one another and with the Trinity. And this matters because we're after joy. And so in conclusion, we say the apostles and eyewitnesses of Jesus, they testified and proclaimed that others may believe and be a part of the fellowship. And we, we don't testify in the strict sense, meaning we, don't, we didn't see Jesus with our eyes. We're not eyewitnesses, but we sure still testify. Like we testify to the power of the gospel. We testify to the sins forgiven, the marriages restored, people set free from sin, the healing that takes place. We testify to the gospel, and we also proclaim the gospel. Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, yet resurrected and reigning, coming one day to restore his creation. We testify and we proclaim. Why? So that others may be part of this fellowship. So that others may be brought into community. Some others may know the love and the fellowship with the Trinity. You see, Jesus' entourage is not small. Like his crew is not small. It's not some elitist group. We testify because we want to see the church grow. We want to see the kingdom advance. We want more people to experience this community and community with God. And so church... Let's find our identity in Christ. Let us cling to and build the fellowship we have one another, resting in the fellowship we have with God. Let's fight for joy. Let's care about joy. Let's guard joy. And let's testify and proclaim that others may experience what we have. Amen.